Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Well, it is my joy tonight. By the way, my name is Pete, and I am the director of Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. And uh, Hopefully the PowerPoint will be coming up soon, but um, it is my joy tonight to share God's Word with you, and we are in the middle of a series called Come and See. It is a series through the book of John, where we are studying uh, the, the book of John, and the goal of the book of John is actually stated quite overtly, and it says this, that the goal of the book is this, that you may believe in Jesus, and in believing, have life. Okay, so what does it mean to believe? I'm so glad you asked. It means more than just a mere intellectual assent. It means to trust Jesus, as as Claire was talking about. It means to reorient your life around Jesus. And as we do that, as we place our trust in him and reorient our lives around him, that we find life, as it says... um, the, the word life, or the word for eternal life is zoe life, the life that God has and the life that God gives as we are in relationship with him. So my hope is as we come and see, as we see Jesus, that we will experience life, the life of God in our own lives. So I'd like to start by sharing a story with you. It was my third year in college and... Um, I'd heard that this accounting firm, by the way, I did not go here. I went to a school in Illinois. And I heard that this accounting firm that was one of the largest accounting firms in the world was coming to our campus to uh, interview for the internship, that they, that they, their summer internship. And I thought, wow, I wonder if I could get the internship. And so I was bold enough to submit my resume. I had to make a resume, first of all and make a cover letter. And I submitted it. And then quickly I found out, guess what? I got the interview. And so they were coming in. They were going to only interview like a dozen people or so. And so I thought, wow, I got the interview. The only problem was I did not have a suit. I did not own a suit. So I was like, okay, I got to go to Dillard's so I can get a suit. I had to buy a tie, buy a suit, and I got it altered in time. And it was ready for the interview. So I looked like I just, you know, always wore suits and ties and so on. But it was the only suit and tie I had. And I go to the interview, and I'm sitting there waiting. And finally, the partner, Michael Dombach, walks out, and he extends his hand, and I shake his hand. And at that moment, I learned what a business handshake is. This man knew how to shake a hand. I don't know if you've ever had one of those handshakes. This man knew how to shake a hand. I'm like, okay, he's got my attention. So I followed him back to the interview. Walk out of the interview, go home, have no idea what's going to happen. Apparently, somebody told me later that Michael Dombach walked out and said, where did he come from? Well, that's a good thing, right? And within two days, they had called me and they said, We liked you, and we want to bring you to St. Louis, because I was in in Illinois. We want to bring you to St. Louis for an all-day interview at at our offices. Okay, it was like on the, I I forget, like 12th or 13th floor, one of the skyscrapers. What you need to know is, I thought, what a dream it would be to be that guy who would work in a skyscraper, wear a suit, carry a briefcase, and fly in airplanes. To me, that was like, wow, I, I grew up in a small rural town, and so I thought that would be pretty cool. So I drive up the skyscrapers on Broadway Avenue, 
They have a whole battery of interviews for me. And I'll never forget this one interview. It was with a partner who was over all their automotive clients and his name, well, their major automotive clients, and his name was Brian Ambrose. And I was walked into his corner office where it had windows on two of the four walls as he sat in his leather chair and we overlooked St. Louis. And it was at the end of the interview and he calls my next interview and he says, are you ready for him yet? And they say no. And so I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, oh no, I got to make small talk with the big wig partner, you know. And I'm like, what do I say? And so here's what I said. I'm not recommending this, this is what I said. I said, so... Once somebody gets this far, what's their chances? That's what I said. That's not what you want to say. And I'll never forget. He, he just, I, I, it's one of those things that was coming out of my mouth. I'm like, I'm not saying this. You know, you, you ever wish you could hit the rewind button? This was one of those moments. And I, I said, so once somebody gets this far, what's their chances? And he sat back in his big leather chair and he shrugged his shoulders. He said, pretty good, I guess. <laughs> so I was like, I can't believe I just said that. Okay. So at the end of the day, and the head recruiter is wanting to meet with me. And I'm sitting there and she is not coming in and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And I'm wondering if my life is about to change. I'm wondering if when she walks in, everything that I've been working so hard for, if my dream of working in a high-rise, wearing a suit, flying in airplanes and carrying a briefcase is about ready to come true. And as she walks in, my heart starts thumping. And she shares with me their decision. Now I want to hit the pause button for a moment. Have you ever wanted something so bad that you thought if you just got this one thing, it would really change your life? It would satisfy some of the longings of your heart that you've had for so long. Have you ever had a moment like that? Maybe it was you're getting ready to text the person that you really like and you are not sure how they're going to respond. And so you hit the send button and your heart kind of does one of those flutter things. You ever had that? Because you know if this goes well, this could be really consequential. And if it doesn't, then well, it doesn't. <laughs> or maybe it's that moment where you got the email that was going to tell you if you got accepted to UVA. And you're like, I'll check it later. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because you just know it's going to be so, con- like this has so much potential to change your life. And, and maybe you're getting ready to step into the, the good life. Have you ever been there? Our passage tonight that in this encounter that we're going to read about that Jesus has, Jesus is going to reorient our lives and put us in touch with how we can satisfy the deepest longings of our heart and how we so often go to other things to satisfy longings that those things could never satisfy. So if you will, open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 4, John chapter 4. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to read the first couple verses of the book of John, and then we're going to take a tour through uh, John chapter 4. We're actually starting in verse 4 in just a minute. But here's how the book of John starts. It starts this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. If you're like, well, who is the Word? Well, go down to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, 
full of grace and truth. In other words, what John says coming right out of the gate, and he wants you to know, he wants me to know, is that if you want to know what God is like, in the beginning was, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he took on flesh in the person of Jesus. And so if you want to know what God is like, here's how you figure out who, what God is like. Look at Jesus. And if you want to know what his character is like and who he is, look at Jesus. And the reason why I want to start there tonight is because as we look at this story, we are going to get a picture of God's heart. John chapter 4 says this, Now he had to go, and he being Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. Now, let me give you a little context. The Samaritans. Who were the Samaritans, and what was Samaria? 500 years before Jesus... The Jewish people had been captured by Babylon, and almost all of the Jewish people were hauled off to Babylon. However, there was a small remnant of Jewish people that stayed in, 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 uh, in Israel. And what happened was, other people moved into Israel, and they were Canaanites, and so these Jewish people married the Canaanite people, and when they did it, here's what they did. They took some of their Jewish religion, some of their Canaanite religion, and basically um, formed a, a hybrid of the two. They intermarried with the Canaanites and kind of started their own tribe that now we know as Samaritans, and the Jewish people, when they returned back to Israel did not want anything to do with the Samaritans because they viewed them as people who were ethnically inferior and religiously heretical. And so there was this tension that had gone on for many, many years, okay? And so in fact, there was so much tension that to get from Jerusalem up to Galilee, Samaria was in the middle, that many Jewish people would actually go from Jerusalem, they would, they would go east, then they would go up north, and it would add about two to three days on their journey just so they wouldn't have to go through Samaria. Okay? And if they did go through Samaria, the Samaritans weren't so happy to see them because the animosity worked both ways. Okay. So it says that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Well, we know he didn't have to go through Samaria, but he had a sense that he had to go. In other words, that the Father had something for him to do in Samaria. So Jesus goes to Samaria, and you start to think, wow, who is this person that Jesus has to meet? They must be pretty important. Well, let's keep reading. In verse 7, it says this. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy some food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. So who was this divine appointment with? And again, we see God's heart as we watch Jesus this divine appointment was with a Samaritan. I just told you about all the tension that existed. He had to go for this divine appointment and is with a Samaritan. Not only is it with a Samaritan who Jewish people considered unclean, 
and compromised, but it's with a woman. Now, here's what you need to understand in that day. Jewish men didn't just go walking around talking to uh, women who are strangers. No, that's, that, that was actually, um, in fact, she says, and I'm a woman, right? Like, that, that's not what Jewish men did in that day, but that's what Jesus does in this day. Not only is she a, a, a Samaritan who is a woman, but she also, as we're going to find out in just a second, she's been married five times. Now, for somebody today to be married five times, that would be quite out of the ordinary. Would you agree with that? That if somebody had, had gone through five marriages, that would be out of the ordinary. In this day, it was unthinkable. Now, we're not told why she'd been married five times. We don't know if it's her husband's continued to desert her. We don't know if they died each time after she got married. We don't know if she had loose morals and, and would get married and then have an affair and blow up that marriage. All we know is this, is she's been married five times and somehow along the way her life has fallen apart. Because sometimes life falls apart. And here's, what we, here's the picture that we get. Not only are all these things true about her, but She is at the well at 12 o'clock, at high noon. Now, here's what you need to understand. In that day, no one went to the well at noon. Why? It's the heat of the day. And if you had to carry water, you didn't want to carry water in the heat of the day. So what is she doing? Why is she there? Well, not only would you not, you'd go either early in the morning or you'd go at dusk. But the other reason is you would go with people. It was a social event, and she is there by herself, which tells us this. There was a huge social stigma around her, right? She was considered an outcast in her day. And so we don't know if it was the shame that she just couldn't face the other ladies in the village. We don't know if the ladies didn't want to face her and didn't want anything to do with her. But all we know is that she was by herself and that's not how you went to the well. So, so I want you to get this picture. Jesus, God in flesh, jumps over all the barriers of that culture, jumps over the ethnic barriers of that culture, jumps over the gender barriers of of that culture, jumps over the moral barriers of that culture so he can have a meeting with this one woman. We have God incarnate going into a, a place purposefully to meet with a woman whose life has fallen apart. Well, when he talks to her, she's stunned. She's used to being ignored. She's used to being acting like her presence isn't even there. And so she replies, if, you know, who, who are you to talk to me? You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and, and I'm a woman. And here's what Jesus answered. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. In other words, he starts using this opportunity to start putting her in touch with her true need. He says, if you knew who it was that you're talking to, you would have asked me for living water. Now, living water, okay, so out of the, the well was... Um, was normal well water, but living water is water that would kind of bubble up and would be on the, on the move, so it wouldn't be stagnant, it'd be fresh, it'd be life-giving. It's the most desirable water in the day. 
It was the, the water that would give, give life. And he says, if you knew who you're asking or who you're talking to, you would ask me for living water. And she says, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? So she's not following what Jesus is putting down, right? Like she's like, uh, how are you going to get the water? And how's that going to work? And are you, are you saying you're greater than Jacob? You know Jacob from the Torah. You know Jacob from, uh, <laughs> from the Old Testament. Like are you saying that you have water that's better than his water? Because he's kind of like a big deal. And then Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. In other words, he says this, the water that I give is as necessary to your soul as water is to your body. What I have to offer you is as necessary to your soul as water is to your body. And not only will it quench the depths of your heart, but it will well up into eternal life, into the life that God has, into the life that God gives. Well, he catches her attention. <laughs> she's not understanding it all yet, as we will see, but, he's, but she's moving towards him. And here's what she says. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me the water so that I won't have to, so I won't get thirsty and I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. <laughs> she's like, I'm tired of making this trip. Okay, so she's coming towards Jesus and you're like, okay, this is going well. And then look what Jesus does. I mean, he does the unthinkable. Listen to what he does. He says, he told her, go call your husband and come back. Oh, Jesus. Like, do you have to go there? <laughs> I mean, this is going so well. Like, Jesus, do you really have to go there? She's coming your way. She's like, okay, I want some of this water. And now you ask the most awkward question you could possibly ask. Go call your husband and then come back. And then what does she say? She says, I have no husband. And what does he say? Can't he leave well enough alone? <laughs> she skirted the question. I have no husband currently. And then this is what Jesus says. You're right to say that you have no husband. Oh, this is so painful. <laughs> the fact is, you've had five husbands and the man that you're now with is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Oh. <laughs> I mean, do you have to go there? Why does Jesus go there as he's, as he's putting this woman in touch with the depth of her need? Why does he go there? I'll give you two reasons why I believe Jesus goes to this awkward moment. Because this awkward moment is actually the pivot moment of the entire story. Here's the first reason why he goes there. So she doesn't question his love for her. Here's what Jesus knows. That after this encounter where she was treated with dignity where she was offered living water and the life that God has and the life that God gives, she would have walked away and thought this. Well, if he really knew me, he probably wouldn't have offered me water. If he, would have, if he really knew me, he surely wouldn't have talked to me. Surely he wouldn't have jumped over those barriers if he knew my whole story. But he wouldn't have offered me 
this living water that wells up to eternal life. And here's, here's the point. Here's what Jesus wants her to know, that he knows the real her, and he's offering the living water to the real her. Okay, okay. And here's what he wants you to know today. He knows the real you, and he offers living water to the real you. And here's the good news of the Bible, that the person who knows you best loves you most. Isn't that good news? And so first of all, he's, he, he knows that if he doesn't go there, she'll start to doubt the love that she encountered in him. And then the second is this, is that she knows, or that he wants to put her in touch with her true thirst. It's as if he goes there as they're talking about water to say, here's how you've been trying to satisfy the thirst of your heart. How's it working for you? You've been thinking that if I can just be in a relationship, then I won't thirst anymore. And so you've gone from husband to husband to husband, and you're still thirsty, aren't you? It's still left you thirsty, hasn't it? And the thing that she thinks would quench her thirst after five men and now on her sixth one, she knows that she is still at the foundation of her heart, thirsty. And so, after he says this to her, what you said is quite true. I picture there was a moment of silence. And then, verse 19, I picture, this is what I picture. I don't know if this is what happened. I picture that he says this and he looks into her eyes and she sees compassion and love coming towards her. And she looks away and then she looks back and says, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. <laughs> because she didn't sense shame. She sensed love and compassion. And then, what I used to think is that she would then try to change the conversation. And, and, and listen to what she says in verse 20. He's, she says this. I'm sorry, in verse 19. Sir, I sent you a prophet, verse 20. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but Jews claim that, you, that the place we were supposed to worship is in Jerusalem. And so she's saying, where? I used to think she was just trying to change the, the conversation from her own story to something like distant. But the more I read this and thought about it, I think, no, I think what she's doing is she's saying, okay, so, so where can I go and deal with God? Where can I go and meet with God? Where can I, I go and, and get this living water? And, and Jesus' reply is a, a very theological reply. But let me just give it to you in, in a nutshell. He's basically saying this. It's not about the place because I have come. And now that I am here and the work that I'm doing, you can meet with God right here, right now. It's about your heart. And she replies, well, once the Messiah comes, he'll tell us. And then Jesus replies, I am he. He says, I am the, Here's the, I am the Messiah. In other words, I am the one that is the fulfillment of the hopes and dreams of the Old Testament. And here's the point. He chooses to reveal who he is to this woman who's had five husbands and whose life is broken. And she's one of the first people he says, I am he. 
Well, she sees glory. She sees in Jesus that, that this must be true. And so what, is, what does she do? It says in verse 26, Then leaving her, her water jar, she went to, to, uh, she, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see. Does that sound familiar? Come and see a man who told me everything I did. This must be the Messiah. Could this be the Messiah? In other words, she goes to town and says, this guy just told me everything I did. Now, that's not something you brag about normally, right? But there's some, somehow the way he connected with her, the, the compassion and love and, and the power that she experienced in her conversation. Now she's getting other people, come and see this man. Could he be the one we've been waiting for? And we find out in verse 39 that indeed people come from Samaria, come to the well, and they meet Jesus. And it says this, in meeting him, they believe. They believe. I would like to talk for just a couple minutes about that awkward moment. <laughs> that awkward moment when Jesus goes there that, and it ends up becoming the pivot point of the whole story. And Jeremiah uh, chapter 2, verse 13, if you could go ahead and put up the, the verse. Jeremiah is speaking for God, and here's what he says. He says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Does that sound a bit familiar? They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and Jesus says, I'm the one who can give you living water. But, so they've forsaken, but what else have they done? They've dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. In other words, they're looking at other things to quench their thirst, and they will never quench their thirst. So Jesus comes to this Samaritan woman and offers her living water and then puts her in touch with the broken cistern that she's been going to from relationship to relationship to relationship. And he's saying, how is that working for you? How's that going? Well, um, I want to give you a definition of idolatry. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, calls, this is how he defines idolatry. He says, idolatry is making anything other than God, whether it be good or bad, into ultimate things. If we, we can take anything, whether it be good or bad, and turn it to an ultimate thing, and it becomes an idol in our lives. And these are the broken cisterns that we go to that we think will satisfy us, but will never Satisfy. In other words, broken cistern, they just keep leaking. They, don't, they, they, they will never give you what they promise. So I thought I would uh, do a little illustration uh, this evening, and I want to clear off my table here. Have you guys wondered what's under here? Did you even notice it? Okay. So here's what... <clears throat> these are just different colors of sand. But I want to talk about the different things that we tend to, to go to that are, are broken cisterns in our culture. I think one of the major broken cisterns in our culture is actually the same broken cistern as this uh, woman who, whose life had fell apart, is that her broken cistern was 
was relationships and sex. I mean, our culture tells us that if you're going to be fully alive, then you have to be sexually fulfilled. And if, you're, if you can just have a relationship or if you can, if, or if you can ha- be sexually fulfilled, then that will satisfy you. But here's what we know. We know that, that no one has ever found fulfillment at the foundation of their life because they finally had sex. Yet it promises us, if you're, if you're going to really be alive, then, then sexual fulfillment is going to be necessary. And if you can just get a boyfriend or if you can just get a girlfriend, then, then that ache at the depths of your heart, you'll be satisfied and it promises so much. And here's what happens. Then it disappoints you and you realize, oh, I guess it's not what will satisfy me after all. Or it could be that you have made it your ultimate and now it cannot bear the weight that you are putting on it because no human being, how good they may be, can ever bear the weight that God is meant to bear in your life. And you actually crush the relationship because you're making them your ultimate. Or maybe it's actually a really good marriage and you get married someday. But here's what you're going to find out. You're going to find out that eventually it's not going to satisfy the depth of your soul and what promised to satisfy your soul. That at the depth, the foundation of your heart, you're still thirsty. So you, okay, well maybe success will be. Maybe if I can just get enough success, maybe that will satisfy my heart. So, so you try to pour success into your heart and you think if I, if I can just get a high enough GPA so I can nail the interview so I can get the job and then, and then carry the briefcase and, and work in the high rise and fly in airplanes and wear the suit, then maybe that will satisfy my soul. Or maybe if I can just get enough athletic achievement, that will satisfy my soul. Or maybe... If I can get the job that everybody else wants and nail the right job, all this will pay off and I will be satisfied and finally I won't thirst anymore. And here's the point. At the foundation of your heart, there is no amount of success that will satisfy your soul. A few years ago, uh, we had a guest come to share their testimony and his name was Tony Bennett. You can imagine how Kaiaf erupted when Tony Bennett came in, right? Because it was unannounced. He's, he didn't want us to announce it. And so, so he came in. And I'll never forget what he said. This is what he said. He said, winning is like cotton candy. He said, oh, it's sweet, but it dissolves in your mouth so fast. And he said, that's why I follow Jesus. Can I put the Pete Bulet paraphrase of what Tony Bennett said? Okay, this isn't Tony's word. This is my paraphrase of his cotton candy illustration that winning no amount of success or achievement will satisfy the depth of your soul. It will dissolve like cotton candy. And no matter how much you succeed, it will still leave you thirsty. And I thought, how many people in our culture make sports ultimate? And and Tony's up here saying, don't do it. It could be, maybe it's not a relationship, maybe it's not success, maybe it's if I can just live the Instagram life, right? Maybe if I can have more great meals and go to more great parties and and go on more great trips and take some great selfies in front of the Grand Canyon, in front of the Eiffel Tower, that maybe that will somehow satisfy my soul and that everybody will look at me and think, wow, what a life they have, and maybe that will satisfy my soul. But here's what I know, there's no experience that you can have that will satisfy the depths of your soul. Or maybe it's if I can just make enough money and get the house and live live in the right neighborhood and join whatever club I wanted, maybe then that will satisfy my soul. 
Or maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's alcohol. I was at my son's game, uh, football game, a couple weeks ago, and I got a text that told me about a friend I grew up with who spent a lot of time at my house had died. And so I texted back, whoa, what happened? And the response was alcohol and drugs. And I knew this person had lived a hard life. And I thought, she turned to those things thinking that it would satisfy the depth of her soul. But the more she consumed, the thirstier she was. I mean, this was a a dear friend. Here's what I what I know. Some of us will not try one of these. We'll try all of them. We'll say, well, if I can have a little more of this and if I can have a relationship and put a little success in and then, you know, maybe some possessions and if I can go on that another trip and then maybe have a hookup here and then maybe another trip and then, you know, and we just say, maybe a combination of it all will will satisfy our soul. But here's, here's the question I have. How much sand does it take to satisfy your soul? Sand doesn't quench thirst, it compounds the thirst. And Jesus puts this woman in touch with the thirst and how she's been trying to quench her thirst. And he says, I'm the one that I offer you living water. And if you will drink the water that I give you, you will thirst no more. There was a a guy in the 4th century by the name of Augustine who had played this game. He had tried to make it to the top of his world and after playing the game and making it to the top of his world, he came to this conclusion. This is a quote you may have heard. He says this, go ahead and put it up there. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Can I put that in the paraphrase of this passage? Our hearts are thirsty until they drink of you. You have made us for yourself. You weren't made for this to satisfy you. Why does this not truly satisfy? Oh, it may give you a high for a moment. I hey, don't get me wrong. It was, it's great when you, when you win. It's great when you, you know, have a relationship. It's great when you buy a house or a car. I, that's great. But it will not satisfy because you're made for something else. You're made to have relationship with your heavenly father. And that's what Jesus came to make possible. That's what Jesus came to win. That's what Jesus came to give you is a relationship with your heavenly father so that your thirst will be satisfied for who you were intended to be. I want to shoot back to my interview. So Lisa walks in and she says, the reason why I was delayed coming in is because the partner stopped me in the hallway that you interviewed with today, Brian Ambrose. He stopped me in the hallway and he said this, make sure you make him an offer before he leaves. 
She's, so I got it. Yeah, you got it. So I walk out with an offer to be an intern for one of the world's largest accounting firms. Get in my car, I go home. I can't believe what just happened. And as I'm driving back across the Mississippi River, back to my school in Illinois, I remember clearly having this thought. Is this all? Like, here's what you need to know. That was a Monday, the night before I was at church. And I had sat on the front row after God's word had been proclaimed. And I had spent time with Jesus. And there was something so powerful about the power and presence of Jesus that was there. And then, I, literally 15, 18 hours later, I get this news. And when I compared the two, I knew that what Jesus had given me and what it meant to walk with Jesus was so far superior. Now, I was grateful. I was thankful for the interview and and for the internship. But I knew that what would satisfy my soul was Jesus and not this job. And I remember driving home thinking, wow, is this all? Because I experienced in that moment, by God's grace, the truth that Jesus is the one who will truly quench our thirsts. Here's what I know. As we continue to walk through the Gospel of John, at the end of John, we're going to see an an episode where Jesus is crucified. And when he is crucified, he cries out this phrase, I thirst. And as Jesus was taking the sin of the world upon him, he began to experience the thirst of the human heart that we experience as those who are alienated from God. And as he experienced that, he cried out, I thirst. And he did that. He took sin on himself and experienced our thirst so that you and so that I could drink deep of the living water so that we could be reconciled to God so that we could have our soul satisfied because we were made for him. And our hearts are restless until they rest in him. There's no acceptance. There's no championship. There's no job. No experience that will satisfy the depth of the human soul. I'm going to call the worship team up as we close. If you're a person who's new to faith tonight, here's what I want you to walk away with. I want you to walk away with this, that Jesus shows us what God is like. And he jumped over all of these barriers because he so valued and loved this one woman He went out of his way so he could meet with a woman whose life was falling apart. And this shows us God's heart. It shows us God's heart for you. And then what does he do? He doesn't just interact with her. He offers her living water so that the thirst of her soul could be satisfied. So how do you respond to that? You respond by simply saying, I'm thirsty. I'm told you satisfy And so I surrender my life to you. 
And then there's Christians here. And I don't know how it has happened. Maybe it's from pain in your life. Maybe it's from success. Maybe it's just simply from busyness. But you began to revert to old patterns. You began to revert to broken cisterns. That you think somehow will satisfy your soul. They never satisfy your soul and they never will satisfy your soul. And I want to encourage you tonight to to return to Jesus, to make him your ultimate, to drink deep of the, the living water that he offers and find your thirst satisfied tonight. And so will you stand with me as we respond? I just want us to drink deep. We're going to sing a song. And my simple desire as we sing this song is this, is that we will drink deep of living water. And so if you need to turn away from some broken cisterns that maybe you've been duped by, hey, they could be good things. Many of the things I listed, those are good things. A job's a good thing. You want one of those. Marriage is a good thing. I'm married. It's a good thing. Vacation's a good thing. But they can never be ultimate things and never satisfy the depth of your soul. There's something so much more fundamental. You were made for Him. And your heart is restless until it rests with Him. Heavenly Father, tonight we say that we want to move away from broken cisterns. Lord, thank you for the heart that you showed us in this text as we come and see. Thank you for showing us your love, that you will climb over barriers to get to us. Lord, thank you that that you are the one who offers us living water that wells up to eternal life, the life that you have, the life that you give. And Lord, we say that that's what we want. Lord, help us to move away from the broken cisterns. Help us to receive them as gifts, but not as ultimate. Help us to keep them in their proper place, but make you the Lord of our lives and the Lord of our heart and the one that we seek where our soul finds satisfaction. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help each of these students to not be duped by the false promises and to surrender those things before you and to drink deep of your living water for your glory and their good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For benediction, may God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he satisfy your soul and give you peace. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's have a great week following Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com. 